I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. G'day and welcome to the Farms Vice podcast where we talk everything agribusiness. Now on this week's episode we'll be catching up with Kate McBride, the girl from the Darling River, otherwise known as the Barker. We tune in to her from Adelaide, a beautiful garden in Adelaide with the birds whistling behind her. But we catch up with her because of her interesting role of how she has landed herself as the inaugural Ankentor Fellow at the Australian Institute. An amazing role and also she's pushing the boundaries as the youngest elected board member on the Western Local Land Services Board, looking after 42% of New South Wales. Astonishing figures there, but let's get on with the show and see what she's all about and what she's up to currently. Well, Kate McBride, welcome to the Farms Advice podcast. Very nice to have you on today along with the birds chirping there in the background. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Absolutely, great to have you on. Where are you tuning in today? Are you coming in from Tolano? No, so today I'm down in Adelaide. Um, one of my gigs is down here. So yeah, with the challenges between borders at the moment, Western New South Wales, unfortunately, isn't really the place to be right now. Um, so sort of basing myself out of Adelaide for the meantime and sort of just playing it by ear um, as this COVID situation unfolds. Yeah, that's it. But it is amazing that we, I'm communicating with you down in Adelaide, farmer to farmer, young farmer to young farmer as well. So it's great to have you on the show. Let's get into it and see what's your connection to Australian agriculture and where it all began for yourself. So where it all began, I was born and brought up on Tolano Station, which is a half million acre sheep property out in western New South Wales, so not too far away from you. Um, so we're based out um, just 45 kilometres south of Menindee. 
Um, so yeah, 500,000 acre sheep property. So it keeps us all pretty busy. Um, I actually left the property. My parents moved back down to Adelaide when I was young for me to do my schooling, which was an incredible opportunity for me. Um, and then sort of finished school and returned back to the station, sort of reconnected with agriculture and then sort of got a bit of direction in life. I think I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I figured it had something to do with agriculture, but I'd sort of lost my connection to the station. So going back there for a bit of a gap year, um, got me sort of reinvigorated back into the ag industry. And ever since I haven't looked back and sort of just one of those people that takes role after role after role, um, yeah. sort of bit of jack of all trades, master and none ever since. Just keep saying yes and the opportunities will arise. Exactly. That's like my biggest um, bit of advice to people in life is when opportunities come up, if you're not sure if you're ready, I don't think I've been ready for any of my opportunities, but I wouldn't be where I am today if it weren't for saying yes. Yep. Just say yes and react after. Make up for it in the end. <laughs> exactly. Fake it till you make it, some say. <laughs> That's it. Well, it's amazing, like the scale of your home block as well, what your family's working on. The average farm size is 4,300 acres. So you're a little bit above the normal for Australia. How does that in the Western districts, how does it differentiate from other, other type of farms that you see more within the media as such, do you think? Yeah, so even um, out in Western New South Wales, we're still considered a really big station, um, which has been incredible. It's part of, I think, the magic and why I love the place so much, but it also brings with it some big challenges. Um, you know, just trying to explain to people what half a million acres is, you know, people from the cities. I have friends in Canberra and it's almost the size of the ACT sort of thing. So, um, you know, it's just absolutely mind-boggling sizes um, and, yeah, it has its challenges, but it is um, an incredible place. It's really where my home is. Like, it's my, I have such a deep connection to it. We're based um, on the Darling Barker River, so on the Lower yeah. Darling. Um, and, yeah, I've just had such a connection to the river as well. So, yeah, it just sort of keeps me going. Um, but as said, brings with it challenges. Being out in western New South Wales, of course, drought is nothing new to us. Um, and over the last few years, we've struggled like many other farmers. But, um, yeah, I think, you know, there's something magic about western New South Wales that you can't explain until people get out there and really see it, I don't think. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. So that love of the western districts your home at Talano there did that move you into looking for new roles like the one with LSS yeah um so it's just sort of I think opportunities have come up and I said like said yes but it really is I think every role that I've taken they sort of seem a bit mishmashed at times like you know I'm this young farmer doing all these different things um but really like the thing that brings them all together is a love of agriculture a passion to get young people involved um and sometimes you've sort of got to be that young person to actually stand up and show people that you can get involved and I remember getting into the industry people saying you know don't get into farming it's male dominated you'll get shot down especially out there you know older farmers don't want young people coming up through the ranks and I went in there and experienced nothing but the opposite um so yeah like my role with um, Western Local Land Services. So for those that don't know, I sort of explain LLS as the link between farmers and government in a way. Um, but we've got landholders that are on the board, so four elected, four appointed. And so I actually got elected by fellow landholders onto the board. I'm still the youngest ever elected board member and I just got elected for my second um, term which is incredible and one of the longest serving um, people on the board now as well. So we look after 42% of New South Wales. So it's absolutely massive. Right. Um, but yeah, I was 19 when I got elected onto that. I had 
very little experience actually no experience when it comes to yeah. boards or anything like that and you know what put my name forward and I have just been accepted with open arms you know going to like people that have been with industry in within the industry longer than I've been alive and asking them for advice um it's been incredible so yeah absolutely this is a perfect example of you know sometimes you're not going to feel like you are ready to get involved with certain things but local land services is it's shaped who I am as a person it's taught me so much on the go um and yeah it's been an incredible organization to be a part of 100% and it's a huge responsibility and even like a committee, the board to be a part of operating 42% of New South Wales. That's astonishing. Yeah, exactly. And since then as well, like I've taken more responsibilities within local land services. So I, for a little while, was on our Aboriginal community advisory group. I've also, since I was, I think, 20, been chair of the weeds committee out in Western New South Wales. So that's like I am head of our weeds committee um, for 42% of the state, which yeah, it's it sort of got thrown a deep in the deep end a little bit, but you know, it's incredible mentors that have really helped me. Um, and yeah, it's big responsibility, but incredible um, thing to be involved in. Yeah, no doubt. How are you juggling your time with these different boards, commitments that you have, and also for your love of being back home, a few k's in between without lockdowns? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I lockdowns have been good for me. It's the first bit of. Um, <laughs> breathing I've had in a little while I reckon but absolutely so I juggle my time between of course the station local land services the Australia Institute I'm also a Woolpole committee member for this year I'm a healthy river ambassador I do this all, all this public speaking and I'm currently doing a master's in global food and ag business so um, I keep myself very busy but yeah I think it's just honestly a love for the industry it really keeps me going um, and also just the people that we get to work with when it comes to agriculture especially all the young people like this is a perfect example of um, you know young people coming together and creating something great um, so yeah I think like I keep my sort of everything I do is because I have a passion about it and yeah. I think that's what keeps me energized but I am learning that sometimes you need to take a bit of time for yourself um, and yeah, that's why lockdown has been slightly good for me. It's kept me in one place for um, more than a few days, but I love that ability to travel, um, but also showcase, I think, all the opportunities that we have in the ag industry. Like, I honestly think there's not many industries that I could do all of these different things. And I've always said that sort of variety is the spice of life for me um, and being able to do all of these things within the industry, being given all these opportunities, um, I'm just so fortunate for. Yeah, I know what you're saying, like, when I'm talking to podcast guests, it is like the most diverse industry you can think of. It's got every role that's in retail, fashion, everything right in within agriculture. We're the start of the supply chain. So it's amazing to see what can happen at the other end of how people yeah, work with different products. But let's move on into your role at Australia Institute. Your inaugural fellow of the Ann Kentor. Yeah, yeah. So um, this is a, a program that a philanthropist by the name of Anne Cantor has set up and they take on eight um, young people, young environmentalists essentially over the year, um, and they teach us a heap of different things. So we, I'm a fully-fledged staff member essentially of the Australia Institute and really my role is a researcher. So I get to pick topics I want to work on, which of course with me is a lot of Murray Darling, yeah. um, but also rural issues more broadly and I get to write submissions and reports and at the same time they're giving me career counselling and mentoring but also um, you know just people within the industry, institute 
uh, teaching us certain things as well. So I get to go up to Parliament House pretty regularly and go and um, work with politicians and talk to them about Murray Darling. But it's been really incredible. So the Australia Institute, for those that don't know, is um, a think tank. It's based in Canberra. And um, they do incredible work on so many different topics. I really focus on the Murray-Darling side of things, but also more broadly that rural, those that rural issues as well. Yeah. And so being able to come into an organisation that isn't ag or rural focused and bring a rural mindset, I think has been really, really amazing. Um, you know, when it comes to things like carbon farming or um, mental health, having someone there at the table essentially that can bring a voice from rural Australia has been really incredible and I think that's something that we're seeing more and more young people in our industry branching out and not just going like I'm just going to work in agriculture I'm going to like it's about bringing the rural and regional voices I think to the cities in certain ways um, so I've been really fortunate I've yeah released my first report I've done a few submissions um, yeah it's been incredible um, and the people that I've met along the way are just mind-blowing honestly the the Australia Institute has some of the brightest minds I think in Australia and I get to learn from them so um but yeah for any young people that think this sounds interesting at all they open this every single year twice to bring another cohort of people in so um if you're ever interested get in contact and I'm more than happy to tell you about my experiences because honestly this has been life-changing for me it's something I never thought I'd do working in a think tank but I'm loving every second of it it's yeah that's fantastic to hear because it's quite unique the position like not many would think I'll go into a think tank and then try to put forward different policies and whatnot, all the issues from the country into the city and make actually move the dial on these. What are the current issues you have worked on over your year within that? Yeah, so um, my main focus has been Murray-Darling, of course. That's sort of my bread and butter. It's where I got um, started in my public speaking and advocacy and everything. Um, but it's funny how, and I've noticed this over the last few years, and it's the same not just at the Australian Institute but media in general. If you're a young farmer and you sort of stand up and start talking about one particular issue, it's almost like the media and groups like this go, oh, well, you're rural, you should know about this. And so you sort of get brought onto all these different topics. Like, you know, when the drought happened, I was all of a sudden up, like asked to comment on the drought, um, mental health in rural areas. Like all of these issues are issues that I really care about. And I think one of the other things that I'm working sort of within the Institute a little bit as well is there's a lot of talk about regional and rural Australia when it comes to climate change, um, carbon farming, climate mitigation, all these sort of things. Um, and I think we really need to make sure that farmers are at the table and actually having these conversations. We can't be seen to, you know, having have city people speaking down to us or telling us what to do. Um, I think really trying to like have everyone understand that farmers are really important in this discussion. Um, yeah, that's sort of, I suppose, one of the other things that I'm really keen to um, be bringing to the table and everyone within the Institute have just been so receptive. Um, so want, like, people want to know about rural Australia. They want to know yeah. what issues we're facing. They really do care. So, yeah, trying to just make everyone understand that we're really accessible. Um, we want to share about our problems, but also our solutions, of course, as well. So I get to work on a really broad range and there's incredible freedom within um, my position, which has been amazing. That's it. Well, farmers do have a lot of problems and just trying to find that solution, the right one for them. And especially environmental, there's a lot of different opinions out there about what's going on and how it's impacting what each property station farm, how they operate. How has that changed in the last year or so, last couple of years and then coming out 
with a bit more water um, for you at Tolano, but also for your research? Yeah, well, it's really interesting. Like, I suppose what I do, I started um, really trying to work to get more water in the Murray-Darling and um, all of these issues. And I remember when people first started speaking to me, they're like, oh, you're an environmentalist and you're a farmer. How does that work? Um, you know, I truly believe that farmers can be some of the best environmentalists there out there. Like, we manage a huge proportion of Australia's land mass um, and we don't make money if the land's sick. So I think a lot of it comes down to informing farmers on how they can better their country we did um, with local land services a few years ago we actually did a um, some polling on people out our way and 97 percent of people I believe it was wanted to hand their country on in a better way than what they'd received it like to their kids sort of thing um, but I think the issue is a lot of people don't know how we can actually better our country and it's something that I'm sort of in a learning process at the moment the fact is people want to know how we can do better um, and so trying to help them understand that but also trying to get across to Australians that we do care about our land we want to see our land healthy um, yeah sort of changing that narrative about the fact that we look after our land um, we look after our animals and we love what we do um, yeah I think sort of that's where a bit of my work and energy has gone into as well because that really needs to be showcased because we do have some of the most incredible farmers in the world um, you know just in our backyard and I think that city rural connect yep. is sort of just getting like worse and worse and so trying to sort of bridge that gap at times is really important. Yeah great stuff and I like it's a bit of a shame that people think environmentalists and farming can't go hand in hand we're managing the biology under the soil and trying to improve that and bring that up um, so we are at the very beginning of where all the food comes from um, and if farmers are able to get their voice up and through things like the think tank um, and various boards like the LLS it's really important for farmers to have their say because each region is very different as you would know in the western districts right across Australia it's all very different. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's where some of this challenge comes down to. And it's sort of where I'm, um, sorry, that's just my dog snoring. <laughs> uh, it's sort of where I've found a bit of a challenge because we see a lot of um, different techniques coming up, you know, around the country and people saying, this is the way to go about it. But a lot of the time they don't actually sort of work in rangeland situations. They're not going to yeah. work at a place like Tolano. Um, and I think that's where it comes down to is educating people what is best for our country what can we do better um, because when it comes to farming and when it comes to Australia one size doesn't fit all um, we need to be working with people individually so that's really important too yeah precisely so for Tolano what have you done like you've gone through a few years of drought just recently and also your family's gone through a few as well what have you implemented on farm technique wise technology-wise, or just your management? How has that changed and adapted to the lack of river in the Barker, darling? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think it sort of comes down to a few different things. Like I always look at Tolano as sort of, um, you know, there's the land side and then there's also the water side. And, of course, I've really focused a lot um, over the last sort of five years on that water side of things, how we can yeah. better water management in Australia, um, I'm sure a lot of your listeners probably remember a few years ago, the mass fish kills at Menindi, um, with the two old fellas standing in the river. Um, that was my old man. I took that video of the mass fish kills and um, yeah, it was a horrible time. But what came out of that is that, um, you know, when it comes to water management, it's not always just drought. So that um, the two major causes of that were actually mismanagement um, of water and also over allocation of water further up. So 
you know, there's sometimes different issues um, that are causing this and trying to address them is really important. Um, so yeah, trying to make sure that we're getting our water um, issues right. We're making sure that our rivers are staying as connected as possible, um, trying to maintain, you know, sort of essentially their natural states, really looking after the environment. Um, and yeah, like I said, farmers need the environment to prosper for us to prosper. And then the other side of it, I think, is really looking at the land and trying to understand the land. Um, we as said we're half a million acres and we currently run about 10,000 sheep. In my lifetime, it's got up to 20, 25,000 sheep, I think, when I was really, really young. But, you know, those, those stocking rates are really low. Um, and it's because I suppose the carrying capacity of our land, um, you know, we really try and make sure that we're rotating stock as much as possible. We're understanding when our country is, um, you know, it, it's getting degraded. We had, so back in Tolano's heyday, it's got an incredible history. If anyone loves history, look it up. Um, but back in its heyday, it used to be 1 million acres. And in one year, they saw 338,000 sheep. So absolutely massive. Yeah, like just crazy. Yeah. Anyway, we still see the effects of them flogging the country out to the point of disrepair even now. So we've got um, paddocks around our old wool shed where they shore the 338,000 sheep that we can't use. So if we're thrashing our country, it is going to take like decades, well, it's going to take, you know, generations to come back, even if it does at all. So um, I think doing that, I'm really keen personally to sort of try and reintroduce some of the species that did get smashed out during those years, things like old man saltbush. Like I'm really looking into um, what we can do to sort of get those deep rooted um, uh, plants back into the system. And I think that concept of like regenerative agriculture fascinates me. But again, as we just said before, sometimes, you know, we've got these concepts that get put forward to us and it's whether they suit our areas of low rainfall. Um, so, yeah, trying to research into that. But I think working with both traditional owners that understand our country, but also people like Charles Massey. I don't know um, how many people have heard of him, but he's like eaten a bit when it comes to the wool industry. But he released a book last year on regenerative agriculture. Um, I was fortunate enough to meet him um, earlier this year at a conference we were both speaking to. So, yes, speaking at. Um, so, yeah, speaking to people like that, trying to get their knowledge, he put me onto some um, potential people that, you know, might be better suited for our area. So really looking into what I can do to better the country is really important as well. Yeah, that's it. And I think, like, a lot of people out there think region doesn't apply to them, especially out in the rangeland in the big pastoral sort of blocks. There's definitely something you can do. We had Angus White, you may know of, a few episodes ago, yeah. and he's really getting into his region and how he can better manage his soils with both livestock management and also the plants that he can introduce, such as saltbush, where you are, is quite vital and also can re-pick up those paddocks and so you can start to use them again. So you can yeah, optimise. Yeah, so many incredible things. Yeah, um, there's so many, even, you know, just that slowing water movement across um, certain areas, like, you know, when we have massive rainfalls out our way and things. Like, there's so much that can be done. I think it's just trying to understand exactly what we can do. And, yeah, people like him that um, are sort of sharing that knowledge is so incredible because, you know, I think it just proves how incredible, like, anyone from Western New South Wales knows how incredible it is during the good times. It is just like eating a bit. Um, but yeah, just trying to make sure that we can sustain it and make the country as good as we possibly can. Um, and, you know, thrive through droughts in the future sort of thing is really important. Yeah. And being prepared for the drought. Now it's sort of gone off the media. How do you think we can keep that front of mind for not only funding from government, but also for farmers to be prepared for, 
for later on, just in case. We know it's going to happen, but we're not sure when. Is that something you, you've yeah. been working on at Think Tank or...? Yeah, a little bit. I'm sort of trying to. Um, but as you said, like, it's such a frustrating thing, isn't it? It's sort of like, oh, the drought's over. Let's just forget about it. Times yeah. are good again. Um, I remember in the middle of the drought, I went on, I think it was um, some sort of breakfast TV show and Studio 10. And I was, I said exactly that. I was like, we've got this ad hoc approach to drought policy. It happens. Everyone gets upset because we haven't done enough to actually prepare for it. Government throws a heap of money and then they forget about it because it rains again. We cannot keep living like this. So yeah, I think really trying to raise awareness of that, um, working, you know, on policy. Um, and this is something that towards the end of the year, I'm really looking and really keen to work um, on is looking at policies is to make sure that we can be prepared. And I think there's definitely ways to do it and again it comes back to that education side of things um i know personally when it comes to my involvement with lls um we saw how well people in western new south wales coped with the last drought like yeah it was tough and yeah we all did it so hard but we knew the drought was coming and most of us got rid of stock when we had to early on before it got like absolutely dire because we're used to droughts and we know what happens, you know, when they get really tough. And a lot of it was those areas, um, you know, sort of further east that aren't as accustomed to drought as we are. And that was when we saw these horrible scenes of, you know, animals too weak to get on trucks and things like that. And um, farmers having to deal with that like that's horrific and that is what we need to avoid and so yeah I think it really is that sort of preparing for it um, at a policy level and a government level but then also an education level of this is what you need to look out for farmers um, and this is how we need to prepare once that sort of initial onset of drought happens it's not going to end straight away and it is going to get worse so yeah um, there's sort of that two sides to it as well. Yeah definitely so for Kate McBride, where's the next five to 10 years take you? What are you, where are you going oh, to be? This question. Um, yeah, have your parents I asked have, this one a bit? Oh, everyone. I tell <laughs> you what, I have no idea. Um, yeah, I think no matter what, over the next sort of five years, I'm still going to be working in the agricultural side of things. Like it's what I love. And yeah, I wouldn't want to be doing anything else. But yeah, exactly what it looks like. I don't know. I've been, um, you know, a lot of people say, oh, you're going to go into politics. Um, you're going to go into like private sector. What's the go? Um, yeah, I don't know. As we sort of said before, like taking opportunities as they go. Um, I'm with the Australia Institute until the start of next year. Um, but yeah, I think just keep, keep learning. I really want to have finished uni. I sort of deferred this semester. Um, yeah. I want to go and finish my master's. So then at least I can say that I'm a jack of all trades, master of one instead <laughs> of none. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't know. I think like at the moment, I definitely am going to have um, a lot to do with Tolano. We're sort of going through as a lot of families do um, sort of that succession issues at the moment Yes, word. Um, yeah. between, you know, generations. So um, I've sort of stepped back a little bit from that at the moment and really just focusing on um, other work. But yeah, I think, you know, I'm sure that'll be sort of out within five years. <laughs> um and yeah, um, I, I honestly couldn't tell you. And I think I'd be lying if I tried to make it up because who knows? I'm just like fly by the seat of my pants and work it out when we get there. Well, that's probably the best way to leave it as an open book. See what comes ahead and just say yes to anything that comes along your way. Yeah, yeah. That's my usual um, way to go about it. And it's treated me all right till now. So, And I think that's the incredible thing about agriculture is it can take you on so many different paths. And if you try and sort of, 
you know, if you have one set direction that you really want to go on, you can sort of miss these other opportunities that come up at certain times. So, yeah, just being open to different um, opportunities, going down paths that you might not have ever thought you'd end up in. Um, yeah, that's what I'm doing anyway. Yeah, and learning from the different sectors. That's what I'm trying to push on the podcast is cross-sector learning, beef learning from sheep and sheep learning from cropping. It's all interrelated and even if you pick up one element, it's going to improve your farm, your outlook as well on farm, which is without a doubt very important for farmers to have a fresh outlook for them, looking ahead and hopefully not looking into a solid drought. But with that, Kate, what's one piece of farms advice that you would pass on for any young goer or old goer as well that's looking to advocate for their for their niche sector of agriculture? How would you go about it? Um, you know what, I think it's like, it's hard to sort of um, give you one piece of advice. I think the main thing is that anyone can become a voice, whether it's for your industry or your particular segment that you enjoy. Um, I often go speak at schools and things like that. And I speak to them about the fact that, you know, a few years ago, I couldn't do any public speaking. I couldn't have even done this podcast. Honestly, it would have scared the daylights out of me. Um, it really is like a learnt skill when you're doing public speaking or anything like this. Um, so get out and give it a go. You know, the only thing that's going to teach you is more and more practice. So, you know, you've got nothing to lose. We have the most incredible industry when it comes to people supporting other people. And I think especially young people coming up through the ranks, the opportunities um, within agriculture to work with other young people to get that advice um is the best it's ever been so you know put yourself out there give it a go sometimes you're going to fail that's just a fact of life but you know that practice makes perfect and those failings actually make you the person that you are yeah definitely that's great advice i think i see like if you see someone in a role like for yourself advocating for the industry don't be put off by someone's already up there doing it you can get up there and do it as well and it's just going to only create a stronger bond between you and I, podcasters as such, for agriculture. So it's pretty important that you do get out there and have your say and put forth any issues that you may have in your niche. Exactly. Because just because there's young people that are doing it, you know, the more young people and especially, you know, within this industry as well, I think like the more women that we have coming up through the ranks, the better off we are going to be. And at the end of the day, it really is our turn as young people within the industry to start driving it. And yep. the only way we're going to do that is to get these experiences, come up through the ranks and, you know, work with each other. I've always said within the farming industry, sometimes we can look at each other's as like competitors and things like that. Like we're colleagues, all of us together, we are one industry and we're all working for the betterment of it. And if you sort of just only look into yourself or your own operation, you can sort of miss that big picture of where we're actually going. And I think, you know, within the ag industry, it is the most exciting time to be involved with it but especially to be a young person in this industry um, we've got challenges coming forward um, in the future no doubt but you know the young minds that are coming up through the ranks when it comes to the ag industry is just mind-blowing and I'm sort of ready for this industry to just take off um, because yeah the young people that we're seeing is amazing absolutely it's booming at the moment so for your public speaking you speak so fluidly I might have to take a leaf out of your book soon but how, how did you do that did you go to public speaking school 
Um, I actually did an initial course with Australian Conservation Foundation. So it was on um, river issues and things like that. And yeah, I don't know how it sort of started. I remember footage of the start of this training program that I did of me not being able to string a sentence together. Like, honestly, I'm not even kidding. I'm not exaggerating. Could not put a sentence together. It was my worst nightmare. Like I was that kid in school that called in sick when we had an oral presentation (laughs) and how much I hated it. Um, but yeah, just over time sort of thing. Like, I think you get your confidence up, you know, I've learned that I know what I'm talking about essentially when it comes to water issues. I have my lived experience when it comes to rural side of things, like this is my story. And so, yeah, like why, why be nervous when you're sort of sharing your story? And I think a lot of it's like, it's come from training and practice and listening to myself over and over again on different podcasts and radio segments where I'm like, why did you say that? What are you doing? Like you beat yourself up here and there, but um yeah like that's it's helped me become who I am um and I think like I hope it's furthered the causes that I'm really passionate about as well yeah I think it's really going a long way to do it if you listen back to episode one of mine it was just few and far between of what this episode would have been as well I was just chopping it out wherever I could because I thought I just sounded ridiculous hearing the sound of your own voice is a bit much when you first get started you just cringe the whole time and I think like no matter what you could be doing this for 20 years and I don't doubt that you'll probably still feel the same way um and yeah every time I hear my voice I'm like oh man you've got an irritating voice but you just you know that's life you're more self-critical of yourself than like your worst enemy um and so I think understanding that as well like you know when you do your first one you're going to look back on it and go, oh you know what was I doing but don't take that as you know a reason to stop you need to take that as a reason that I can get better and every single time that I do this, I'm going to get better and better and better at it. Yeah, 100% couldn't agree anymore. But we'll wrap it up there. For Farms Advice podcast, who would you like to recommend on the show and why? Oh, I don't know. I feel like, you know what, two of the people that I look up to more than anything um, are Charles Massey, who I mentioned before, but also Bruce Pascoe, who's a traditional owner um, doing incredible things within the industry as well. So, yeah, I suppose they'd be two people that I would be, um, would absolutely love to listen to and I think could give some incredible advice, more so than (laughs) just me. Amazing. That's out of the realm of most nominated ones. So that's really good. Keep it diverse for the podcast. For anyone looking to reach out to you, how can we reach out to you? Social media, email? Yeah, so um, shoot over to our Facebook page. We've got one called Tolano Station. So it's T-O-L-A-R-N-O Station. Um, old man runs that. So ignore the spelling mistakes <laughs> and things like that. But also um, my Instagram is Kate underscore McBride. That's where I sort of do um, most of my social media. And my email is Kate at Tolano.gmail.com. So yeah, get in contact. Like it may sound like, you know, I made myself sound very busy before, which I am, but um, you know, I love getting in contact. I love giving advice to young people. And I think that's the most important thing we can do in this industry is help build young people up. So get in contact, any questions, anything at all. Um, I'd love to hear from people. Amazing. You'll be able to find it all in the show notes anyway. But Kate, thank you so much for coming up coming onto the show with your busy schedule wherever you are down there in Adelaide but keep advocating for your region our region and also agriculture in general thank you very much thanks for having me thank you for tuning in to episode 64 with myself and Kate McBride thank you Kate for donating your time into this episode It's really important to showcase the young guns in the industry that are advocating 
for a better world within Australian agriculture. And we need you to be advocating for your sector, your niche of the industry, to be able to move forward and challenge the different ideas out there within Australian agriculture. So really important to have you on the show and showcase what you've been up to, but also just to add in that diverse nature of what agriculture has for the children of agriculture. You can move off and do nearly virtually whatever you want, but also have that tie back to the family farm like Kate does at Tolano Station there. Interesting fact is, children of farming families in Australia, the average age that they move back is 27. And that's actually, the irony of it is that's the age I moved back to our family farm. So do what you like with this episode. Take out the different elements that you think are important and see how you can apply them to your approach to agriculture as a young person or an older person looking to advocate for your niche sector. So if you did like this episode, please make sure you do share it on your socials, in your stories. It shares pretty well there straight off Spotify and I'd love you for it to help get this episode and the other episodes before it, the 63 episodes before it actually, to farmers out there that actually need the motivation, the kick up the ass to get going and also It's a great way of meeting people and listening in to different stories right across Australia. Where else can you do it other than on a podcast? But until then, next Tuesday, keep on farming. Thanks very much for sticking around to the end of this episode. I hope you really enjoyed it. But if you've seen our socials, you probably know that we're campaigning to fill these harvest roles for the 21 and 22 season. If you have any jobs available on your farm or you know an agency that's recruiting for harvest roles, make sure you send us a message on Instagram, Twitter or LinkedIn or even email us at hello at farmsvice.com.au and we'll do our best to get that on the page as a free resource for farmers to be able to fill their roles. We're not charging anything. We just believe that pulling all of this information together will really help the farmers in the end to fill these roles in a very important time. But thank you. Let us know. Send us a message and we'll put it up there. See you next Tuesday. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.